my name is Emma Cox. I'm with McDonald's. I uh, am joined by my co-chair, Rob Weatherald, and Kurt Carnatz could not join us today, but he's also a part of our trio on programs. Um, thank you so much for being here today. What a great crowd. We are trying something a little bit different today, as you have probably gathered. Um, Logistically, it's going to be a bit more challenging, so please bear with us as this is the first time we have done this type of format, um, but we welcome your feedback on the surveys after the program. Um, so hopefully, uh, we're going to be doing something a little more fun, a little more interactive, a little more competitive, um, and hopefully, most importantly, uh, something that gets us all thinking about something new when we leave here today. So I just want to run through kind of what's going to happen. So we have 10 wonderful speakers here today that all submitted topics. Um, we tried our best to select a very diverse and talented, I, I believe we did a, a good job selecting a, a diverse and talented group of speakers and topics for you today. Um, the speakers will present in alphabetical order and will each have exactly C timer, three minutes. They won't be kicked off the stage, but we, they will be encouraged to wrap up at the three minute mark to present on their topics. Each presenter will go through their presentations and you will applaud. Um, and then at the end, we will select the winner by applause volume. This is, very, this is our very technical measurement of a winner. Everyone's a winner, right? So without further ado, I am going to call up the speakers. Their bios are on your, on your table, so I won't bother going through all the bios. Um, and let's welcome them with applause. We have Christian Baudin, Drew DePriest, Colette Dixon, Lillian Harris, Julie Magus, Ruth Minnick, Steve Monaco, Michelle Pasquale, Tim Swanson, and Christine Wicks. One thing I will say is that each presenter will be uh, introducing themselves, and then once they're ready for the presentation to start, Rob will start the clock. So they will not be timed on their introduction. All right, thank you so much. Should we go? All right, let's get started. Uh, my name is Christian Bodwin. I work for JLL. Um, I forget the introduction. We'll do the three-minute thing pretty quick. Um, so I'm here today. There's a lot of big companies. I'm ready to start. But I'm here to announce the death of Mega. So a lot of us work at big companies, and I'm here to show that bigger is no longer better. And I promise we'll talk about real estate soon. But before I do, I'd like to talk about beer. You might see some different beers here on the left and on the right. Some are maybe large brands. Some are maybe craft or custom beers. But how do you think these are doing over the last few years? Here's how they're doing. Domestic light beer sales are at their all-time low, and craft beer sales are at an all-time high. They've gone 6x in the last 10 years in terms of revenue growth. Now, maybe you don't drink a lot of beer. I don't. 
but maybe you wear jeans. So there's some jeans on the left, which you can get for $30 at Target. There's some jeans on the right, which you can get for $300. These are hand-stitched and crafted in Austin, Texas by a guy named Noah. Now, how do you think these jeans are doing? Levi's Gap, every big brand is down in terms of their sales. Big brands are dying. Small custom craft jean sales are going through the roof 5x over the last 10 years. Maybe you don't like beer or jeans, but maybe you like God. I, I don't go to church very much, but mega churches were the rage in the 90s and the 2000s. People were building auditoriums and theaters for churches. And small community custom craft churches were dying, right? What's happened over the last five years? Mega church attendance is down 16%. Community church attendance is up 16%. Exact reversal. What's happened is that things that are perceived as corporate or large or standard or mass-produced or mega are all dying in terms of consumer perception. What's happening now is that anything that's seen as custom or bespoke or private or unique or customized is growing in attraction for anyone who's a consumer. Now, how does this impact us? How do you think these buildings are doing? How do you think mega buildings like this one on the left are doing in terms of performance lately? Compared to a renovated, custom, bespoke building, a small office product on the right side, here's how it's going. Rents for Class A standard buildings have essentially gone nowhere since I was in high school. Renovated creative office space, custom, bespoke building rents have gone triple in the last 10 years, from 15 bucks to about $40, $45 a square foot. What's happened? is happening to all of us in real estate. How about hotels, which are another part of real estate? When was the last time anyone here took a selfie in front of a Holiday Inn? <laughs> I was really proud to stay in a Marriott, right? Compare that to the waiting list at Chicago Athletic Club or the Soho House or now the Graduate Hotel chain, which are bespoke, they're custom, they're individualized and they're personalized. Things that are impacting the consumer space are now impacting commercial real estate and impacting all of us. So, time is short, but the past is mega. The future is all about custom. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. My name is Drew DePriest. I work for a workplace technology startup called Comfy. And I'm here to scare the hell out of everybody that remote work is killing all of us very, very slowly. So really quick, I want you to think back as you're fighting over who gets the last bit of tiramisu. Think back to the last time, for those of you who work in an office, that you celebrated something really fantastic as a team. Maybe you had a two-year project that finally wrapped up and everything went according to plan. Maybe you closed a big deal. Somebody got promoted or you have a new hire coming on board. Maybe somebody had a baby. All these kinds of things that when you celebrate by yourself are super impactful, but when you celebrate it with the other 10 people who sit 20 feet away from you, amplifies that experience by a factor of 100. It's the reason we all work in corporate real estate is to create these sort of environments and experiences that foster collisions where you get to interact with other people. It's connectivity that makes us human. Now, if you strip, Beth's playing with my slides. If you strip all of that away, it's intentionally black. If you strip all of that away, uh, you, you have the experience of the remote worker. They're still somewhat connected through IT, but they don't have the human element. 
And here in the United States, as of 2016, Gallup said that number of people who have that experience is at an all-time high. Nearly half of every worker in the, in the US currently works remotely, from home, from a Starbucks, from wherever they, they generally can. Now, that may seem like a very positive, cost-efficient way to adapt to a flexible, evolving workforce, but there's an inherent danger to that, so much so to the point that a former Surgeon General of the US, Dr. Vivek Murthy, who served under President Obama, six months ago published research in Harvard Business Review citing a loneliness epidemic of everyone who goes to work in the United States. So not only are we more and more lonely at work, but think of that impact for people who work remotely. Same vein, Gallup points to the single leading indicator of success and engagement at work is if you have a best friend at, in the office that you see every day. Remote workers don't have this capability. From a, a mental health impact, you know, the, the financial implication of mental health of remote workers, Dr. Murthy compares this, the impact to your brain in terms of life expectancy and cognitive function is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes every single day and then going to work. It's a big, ginormous, huge deal. The upshot, the reason everybody's sitting in this room, you have the power to fix this. Corporate real estate can be the single driver that impacts and makes the lives of your remote staff better. So two things to think about as you're crafting these policies moving forward. One, connectivity. Encourage your remotes to get more active out in the world. Pay for them to join Cornet. Encourage your, your at-home, in-office employees to reach out to your remotes more frequently. And then two, Community, try to foster a way that your remotes who aren't, don't have an office to go to every day, think about working co-working into your budget for the next year. It's good for their mental health, it's good for their productivity, it's great for the bottom line, and ultimately that is, that's what corporate real estate is all about. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Colette English-Dixon. I am currently the executive director of the Marshall Bennett Institute of Real Estate at um, Roosevelt University. And we're going to talk about, did I get that, did I do that right? No. Forward. Why is it so hard to make commercial real estate diversity happen? So when you look at the population of the United States, approximately Two-thirds of them are white, one-third of them are minorities. When you look at the population of college students, it's about 40% white women, about 37% white men, and 23% everybody else. But tell me why, in this industry, senior executives are 77% white male. Tell me why professionals, which is really the largest pool of professionals in the industry, are almost 60% white male. Only when you get to clerical workers in this industry do you really find women leading the charge. And in that situation, women outnumber men more than three to one across the board. The chances of advancement in this industry for a white male who's in the middle level to get to a senior level is three to one. For a woman of color, one in 12. So what are the challenges I keep doing this. So what are the challenges that we seem to be having in promoting, sustaining, creating diversity in the commercial real estate space? One, a lack of role models. People can't envision themselves doing something if they don't see anyone who looks like them doing the same thing. 
educational opportunity. So many of these roles are now defined as requiring a college education, a degree that may be related to real estate, but yet there are so many young people who have no clue what the opportunities are in the commercial real estate space. It's time to unpack that. It's time to demystify the industry. Competitive positioning. I actually think that that's something that people can use to their advantage. Competitive positioning may mean having the diverse talent at the table when you're fighting for that next client because your client is increasingly diverse. Internships and mentoring are a key way to get young people in the door. Find them when they're trying to figure out what they want to do. Give them the experience that works for everybody. So how do you move the needle? Find an undergraduate or graduate program that actually reflects the sort of diversity you want to bring in the door. Consistently engage with students early in their careers. Provide an inclusive environment so those you get in the door actually want to stay. And consider ways to promote educational opportunities that help prepare talent for advancement. And also, find ways to be creatively breaking the mold. Look at ways to bring in this diverse talent so that it can help you have the competitive edge. So diversity, why is it so hard? I don't know, but I think there's a lot we can do to make a change. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Lillian Harris. I am the founder and president of Advocates for Adolescent Mothers, a wonderful nonprofit organization here in Chicago that provides financial support to young mom college students. And I am also a recent graduate of Roosevelt's real estate program. When I accepted the invitation to speak at this event, I knew that I would speak about leadership. After speaking on a panel of human service experts in DC last week, I decided to approach this speech differently. I had the audacity to speak to them about money, power, and respect without providing my intended context. Great leaders learn from their mistakes. Thus, I will clarify that today, I am speaking about money, power, and respect in the context of influence. Generally speaking, the individuals who are recognized as influencers often control large sums of money, have a great amount of power, and command the utmost respect. When these influencers speak, people listen. What these influencers recommend becomes implemented. There are many extraordinary leaders in the human services and real estate professions, yet the extraordinary leaders from these two industries rarely reach the same level of influence. Your influence as a real estate professional has tremendous potential to move the needle on issues that impact our communities, our environment, our society. You probably have charities that you support either by giving financially or volunteering. Many of your companies likely have corporate social responsibility programs which also support important causes. 
These organizations and their missions also need the benefit of your influence. This is especially true for the missions and movements that are stigmatized. Your influence can empower the staff at these organizations. Your influence can strengthen the efficacy of an organization's ability to advocate for its mission. Ironically, most human service professionals are amazing at advocating for those they serve, yet are challenged at advocating for themselves and the value of the work that they do. I contend that the work of human service professionals is universally disparaged. I suppose that this is in part due to the shortcoming of the human services industry to align itself with the influence that money, power, and respect provides. I've keynoted numerous events, but this speech took me the most number of drafts to write. I think it is because the opportunity to speak before influencers like you provided me the opportunity to advocate across sectors a huge responsibility. I hope that you too will embrace the power of your influence to further a cause that resonates with you. Thank you for your time. So, hi, my name is Julie Magus. I'm director of experiential graphics at IA, Interior Architects. I'll explain a little bit about what that means here in my presentation. <coughs> but just to let you know, I made this more complicated for myself, and uh, I'm going to do it Pachacacha style, which means it's 20, 20 seconds per slide. So it's going to advance automatically, and I have no control over it. So <laughs> wish me luck. Okay. <laughs> Ready? So we're talking about experiential graphic design today, which is hard to say, so we shorten it to EGD. And EGD is really about the combination of place, the architecture, people in the place, and the story that we're trying to tell about the organization's culture and brand. <clears throat> so EGD is a multidisciplinary uh, service just like the village people. And um, here's some eye candy of some pictures uh, of some of our projects, just to let you know kind of what some of the deliverables and outcomes can be, what we bring to the table. And um, I'm gonna talk about why it's important to the workplace. So, <clears throat> first is people. Um, pay attention to, we wanna pay attention to the audience in the space. So if it's a visitor for the first time or people that work there every day, it's just as important to pay attention to them and what their perspectives might be. And hopefully by bringing in EGD and the brand, we can weave in a little humor and fun um, and we can make it bespoke, right? Um, so because we're designing the architecture, we are able to design graphics very specifically to that architecture. Um, this corridor was very long and very plain until we came in and um, really utilized its length and made it very specific to that company. And last, the story, telling the story of the organization uh, through the graphics. So this is a very data-driven uh, organization, and so we used graphics that are also very data-driven and originated. And um, graphics on glass don't have to be just uh, frosted dots. They can be really customized to tell the story. So why do we do this? 
first to inform uh, the American Medical Association here in Chicago wanted to explain to their visitors and their members um, about their legacy and their history. So we have a timeline and we literally carved their messages into stone um, to inform about what their mission is all about. Second is Inspire, so a certain internet retailer that we work with. Uh, we wanted to connect the employees in the workplace to what's actually happening on their website. And if you've never read the reviews for the banana slicer, I suggest that you go do that right after this is over because it's really funny, it'll change your life. Um, and third, Engage, right? So we don't want people to be sad at work. We wanna get them to really be involved in the place and uh, whether it's uh, digital or analog, it's about having them interact and be involved and have a place there and feel physically involved too. So to summarize, EGD is our way of bringing the client's brand to life in their workplace. Of all the pieces and parts of a client's brand, they want to express to their customers, to their employees, um, we can help, all of us can help to bring that to life in the built environment through experiential graphic design. It's under the Adobe. There you go. Tactical difficulties. All right, my name is Ruth Menick and I'm with Unispace. I'm Director of Business Development and we are a global interior design and construction firm. And um, I think we're ready to kick it off. Go back. <laughs> there you go. All right. Our pre presentation today is entitled, Do You Miss Your Office? But we also call it, Remember What Focus Was Like? <laughs> so why do companies change their workplace? That's the question. They do it to promote collaboration, productivity, and because the main drivers to change in the workplace are consistent across the globe. In particular, to better collaborate, attract talent, and cost savings. So yet what's happened, we've seen over the past 10 years, is that collaboration has decreased. And with people wanting more ways to focus in their open environments. This has been well documented in many studies and articles, and some citing employees' dissatisfaction, and other articles that show the benefits of productivity and collaboration are completely inconclusive. What you see here is how organizations been trying to solve this problem. We call this the introvert's dilemma. People relying on headphones, sequestering themselves to private office areas, and trying to make sh makeshift signs to make it the focus that they desperately need. Our research shows that the vast majority of our time at work is based on the need to focus with 60% of that time, and only a quarter of the day is focused on collaboration. So the ultimate question is, what type of space is going to drive productivity in the return on investment? The challenge lies in ensuring, creating workplaces that not only promote concentration, in the different, but also the needs of the different work personas. So 
By developing work persona profiles to map the spectrum of work habits, these personas help us understand the formal and informal drop-in areas that are successful for the fulfillment of roles. From collating data for hundreds of companies around the world, we've identified the following workplace personas are butterfly, anchor, independent, seeker, teamer, and traveler. While they are far from exhaustive, they give some indication of divergent ways workers are now trying to use the workplace. For example, our anchor. He, might be an, he or she might be an analyst, an administrator, who undertakes tasks requiring, requiring focus, formality, and therefore they might need a desk or consistent desk or bench that provides conference rooms also and an activity hub to connect with their colleagues. The butterfly is one that would need mobility and ability to collaborate in the informal space. It might require a drop-in space or a cafe to allow them to do their work. Um, this would be probably like your marketing or your HR team. Um, no modern workplace is complete without the seeker. These are often your engineers, your IT managers, and they need more ability to focus and concentration in isolation. And they might need to socialize in the cafe, but most of those meetings are set in Skype, and their more formal space requirements are really minimal. So most of their day they spend at their desk. I myself would be considered probably the independent. I'm out at meetings all day and you know, doing things like this, but then I might focus directly at my desk and need time for research. Using personas to understand how employees use their workplace yields a more balanced approach to allocating workplace. The method underscores the need to provide employees with choices that ensure their workplace adapts to the diverse needs of both individuals and their teams. Planning in the past provides a workplace that supports better individuals, and we really want to do that, so thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Steve Monaco with Monaco & Company. I'm a small consultant firm um, concentrating on corporate real estate and facility management. Okay. Have you, um, everyone's seen the news lately where people at uh, the Apple campus are walking into uh, glass panels? Um, this is not a new thing. What's missing is distraction dots. They're called distraction dots because if you don't see them, you're obviously distracted. Um, I would argue that today we are distracted. We are actually a group of multitasking um, zombies. And so we're going to take a test to find out if you're a zombie or not. Uh, are you taking time to smell the roses? And do you actually know there are roses? So, <laughs> so this is interactive. I need everyone to stand up to take this test. And if, I'm, if I go over three minutes, it's your fault, not mine. Okay. All right. So we're going to take a test. It'll be rapid fire. If you get it correct, stand up. And if you get it wrong, sit down. Number one, when you arrived at today's event, did you recognize there's a Cornet logo on each revolving door? Did you see the logo at the revolving door? Great. Number two, did you notice that global was spelled wrong? If you, if you, if you missed that, sit down. Next question, I'm going to be able to ask okay, when you grabbed your badge, did you realize that there was music playing in the lobby? Remain standing. Did you realize it was a, uh, a song from the Monkees? All right, what song was it, number one, two, or three? What was that? 
It is, uh, it is number two. I'm a believer. And I'm a believer of awareness and the power of awareness. I believe that, um, remain standing, if with observation and interpretation, we have the chance to innovate. But we can innovate only if we, with, with application. So how does this apply to all of us? Well, if you're in a meeting with a client and you talk too much, do you, are you aware when you're losing their attention, right? Or, or what about at home when you're speaking with your children, your spouse, your partner, your family? Are you aware? Do you have your game on professionally, but you're a zombie in your home life? Or what about emails? How many times do you use the word I instead of we? Or what about in the open workplace? Are you that one person that talks really loud despite the glaring looks from everybody? And what about here today? When you look around you, do you see all the, the yellow tags? Those are guests and visitors. So we have a final, final test. If you remain standing, close your eyes. Everyone close their eyes. If there was an active shooter right now, how many exits are there from this room? Four, five, or eight? Use your fingers. Open your eyes. There's eight different exits from this room. Um, not only can uh, awareness improve your relationships, increase your ability to do business, but it might save your life someday. Thank you. My name is Michelle Pasquale, and I am with uh, Meridian Financial Solutions. Uh, it's an engineering-based tax services firm. Uh, I'm the managing member, and I started it in 2006. So today, I'm going to talk about cost segregation and how you can use this strategy to free up cash flow now and how all of you can use um, the cost segregation as well as the opportunities in new tax reform to expand and grow your own business. The new tax reform presents several exciting opportunities. Uh, I'm only going to hit on a few highlights. There's not even close to time to talk about all of them, but feel free to catch up with me later if uh, you have any questions. So cost segregation, as many of you know, is a tax reduction strategy that is IRS guided and enables building owners to increase their cash flow through the accelerated depreciation of roughly 20 to 60% of building costs. So um, this strategy is essentially front-loading the depreciation on the real estate, uh, taking advantage of time value of money, and uh, can be a really fantastic tool for long-term hold real estate. 
It gets even better because the new tax reform um, brings forth 100% bonus depreciation, which um, more than triples the first year tax savings. Additionally, the new tax reform also um, excuse me, I can't seem to get the slide, but the new tax reform also applies to used real estate. So previously, uh, it was restricted to just leasehold improvements, new construction. Now we're seeing a huge increase, and I expect an influx in studies on used properties. Uh, additionally, something valuable to know is if um, one of your clients hasn't taken advantage of the strategy and they're in need of an influx of cash flow, they can go back and catch up on missed depreciation um, and catch up a significant amount of cash flow through reduced tax payments all in the current year and also carry it forward. Um, so just to kind of recap um, the key benefits of cost segregation and how it hits multiple areas of real estate, um, it enables investors to expand their business, um, which they can potentially buy more furniture, um, more interior design money, uh, more money to spend on HR, diversity, or increasing transactions through um, just expanded cash flow that they can um, buy additional properties. Um, banks are often willing to um, increase the debt-to-cash ratio, um, which is a significant advantage, can make deals work out. And for many of you that are brokers, the illustration of a cost segregation study can um, help bid up the um, sale price as well as reduce carrying costs for the buyer. So win-win. Uh, the last thing I'll say is from a design build standpoint, uh, there's several ways architects, uh, developers, contractors can build tax savings into the building. Um, and for demo and rehab projects, it enables you to retire um, assets and get ghost assets off the books. So um, a lot of great ways to use this to bring value to your clients and also to grow your business. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to catch up with me afterwards. Thanks. Real quick, my name is Tim Swanson. I have been with Skender for uh, day four. Today's day four, actually. Uh, I don't know if any of you caught it. Uh, we did a, a kind of a restructure to say, what does it look like to be a fully integrated design manufacturer and, and construct company? And so I just joined as the chief design officer. I got a bunch of questions and wonders about what ifs. What does it look like when we think about the way we do buildings a little bit differently, that's kind of what it looks like. This is what we do. We stack a bunch of stuff on top of each other, we put fences around, we close roads, we try to make as little pain possible in the thing that has tons and tons of pain. And the reality is behind it, that's what we end up with. 
So we have a world where we're doing things full of pain. We have a world that has a bunch of scrap left over. So you start to wonder, are there better ways to do it? Are there actually better ways to think about the way we do buildings, to think about the way we do physical spaces so that we don't end up in a Blade Runner movie? Now, I think it's really cool, some of the stuff in a Blade Runner movie, but I don't want to live there, and I, uh, I certainly don't want my kids to live there. So we kind of have to work together, like this cropped photo that I found on Google of people rowing a boat. And just as an aside, this uh, entire presentation is brought to you in part by me searching words on Google image search. So, uh, so what does that mean? Step two, let's build stuff inside. What does it look like to build a building inside? And I don't actually mean building a Lego tower inside, although this guy's pretty prolific and he's putting a dragon on the top of his. And I don't actually mean making buildings that look like they were just stacked Legos on top of each other either. But I wonder what it looks like to have fine German engineering when it comes to the buildings that we do. What does it look like to do the pieces that we do in a space, in a controlled environment, so that we don't have 10 or 20 or 40 or 50 job sites, but we have one job site, so that we're training a next generation of individuals who understand the technology that goes into it. I'm not talking about building modular towers that look like single wides stacked on top of each other. I start to wonder what Bugatti does when they think about a car. They think about it as this glorious coming together of manufacturing. So when a building comes together like this, it's not about stripping away the design, but actually it's about celebrating the design, making more space for the design and opportunity. It's creating communities, right? Creating jobs, filtering back into, uh, in a way that celebrates what it means to build the very things that we live in, that we work in, that we get healed in, and creating new job pipelines. So just as uh, uh, many people have talked about, uh, what does it look like to create new paths in for a whole generation of individuals into the built trades? Now, I'm going to compare it to phones, and people get really pissed off when you compare this stuff to phones, so anyone who gets pissed off, just go ahead and get pissed off, but phones start by designing ideas. They work, they have user groups, they talk with people, they explore, they sketch, they create, but they also iterate over and over again. Each one of those is a little bit better than the last one. Each one of those takes all the learnings and moves it forward. What does that look like for a building? Mies did it when he was doing the post office. He couldn't figure out how to make that beautiful glassy building happen in the way that it did. So he had to go there. He had to talk with somebody who knew how to float glass and say, please, for the love of God, I drew a picture with big windows, make those windows a reality, and that's what they did because it was a unified and integrated approach. So when you explore materials, that's a, that's a, there's this whole new world that opens up for all of us as we think about it. When buildings come this way and realities in the future comes this way. Now, I, I'm over time, but Christian, I just want to throw out, you're exactly right. The reality is that bespoke and custom is exactly where it is, just like how 312 and Goose Island is made by Anheuser-Busch. So it's okay to think about the large scale of things that happen and think about the custom and the value that can come out of it. Thank you all very much. Wow, well, what a panel to have to wrap up, huh? <laughs> My name is Christine Wicks, and I run marketing for CNW Services, which is a sister company of Cushman and Wakefield, and we employ all of the janitors and mechanics and other people that keep the built world running. And for, let me get my slides going before we, okay, you can hit the timer. So for the past few years, I've been leading a small marketing team that has been using storytelling to establish a new brand for CNW Services. And we produce two or three stories a week about the real people in our organization and at the company and the good job that they do, and that's some of our people. 
And this storytelling has been fascinating and rewarding, and which, that's one of the reasons it's a lot of fun to talk about. But the other reason that it's fun to talk about is that it works. Stanford did an experiment where they had people tell really short stories about a minute long about crime. And some of the people used statistics, and some of the people used stories. And afterwards, when they polled the audience, about 5% of the office remembered this audience remembered the statistics, and about 63% remembered the stories. And I'm betting a lot of people in this room do new business pitches, and I'll bet 63% memorability sounds a lot better to you than 5%. And even if you don't sell at all, we all have to persuade in our businesses. And storytelling is a really great way to connect to the people with, that you're trying to persuade. So, you know, you know, with two minutes left, how do you do it? Where do you get stories in your organization? Well, oddly enough, I have a story about that. Um, this is Miriam. She manages everybody who cleans Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. And Miriam worked her way up from an hourly job to that position. So when we went out to start trying to find stories in our organization, we talked to managers, and Miriam's manager was sure she was going to have a great story for us. So we show up to Gillette Stadium with marketing people and video crews, and we talk to Miriam, and she completely freezes and doesn't think she has anything to say to us. So other end of the spectrum at Gillette Stadium is Jim. Jim manages all the maintenance technicians that keep the stadium running. And Jim, unlike Miriam, had a lot to say. But Jim really kind of thought the storytelling was silly. So every time we would videotape Jim, he'd give us a great soundbite, and then he would roll his eyes. So that wasn't really working either. <laughs> so we decided that we just had to kind of scale it back and turn off the cameras and talk to Miriam and Jim. And when we did, it turned out that they had great authentic stories that they were just really wanted to tell. But they didn't think of them as marketing or marketable. They just wanted to talk on a human level about what they do. So that was one understanding that we had. But when we talked to Miriam and Jim, we found out about what they do, but we also found something that we didn't expect to find. And that was that Miriam and Jim together could articulate better than anyone ever had why bundling their services was the best thing for their client. And when you find that kind of insight from the field, it not only shapes how you tell Miriam and Jim's story, it starts shaping how you sell and how you deliver service to your client. So if you embark on a mission like we did to tell stories and find, find your compelling stories in your company and to tell them, I would leave you with this last insight. And it's what we rediscovered, but what you all probably already know. It's really not storytelling, it's story listening. Thank you. Well, thank you to all of our speakers. Very interesting. We have time for Q&A uh, of any speaker on any topic. And um, I am going to walk around the room with a microphone. So please, please raise your hand. Hi there. I have a question for Steve Monaco. Um, I'm definitely a zombie, for sure, and I was just curious if you had advice on how to become more aware and less of a zombie. Hello. That's good. Um, I'll tell a story from uh, the point of view from a facility manager. Um, I just helped someone move in, and we had to prepare for day one, and we just went to each room and stopped and looked around 
and just slow down and to ask yourself what's missing from this picture or what's in this picture that shouldn't be. And we went really room to room and by the time we were done, I think we had 185 items that we should be aware about. And it became a game. So I guess my, my advice is to slow down and, and um, be intentional about, about looking at something and observing and then try to figure out what does this observation tell me about behavior. So that's my story. My, my question is really for anyone, but starting with uh, uh, Christian's first presentation on you know, big and small um, organizations, you work for a very big organization. On the other hand, you have Steve, who has a more boutique, small, right. Um, how, how do you scale between those two, especially you know, when, when you see the, the stats that you put up of going to a more bespoke world, how do you do that within a larger uh, you know, framework of JLL. Sure, I, I, I think it's actually a big challenge for all of us, why I brought it up internally at JLL. But I think having a customized approach doesn't require a small firm. I think treating every client individually and treating every project individually has a lot of power. And in a prior, you know, the prior economic cycle, growth was the primary driver of a lot of our companies, uh, and to some degree still is. But I think a focus on clients will secondarily lead to more growth uh, than just focusing on uh, scale. Any anyone else on the panel? Actually, Tim, I'd like to hear your because you're new at Skender and you were bespoke and now you're part of a larger organization. Yeah, it's a it's just to double down on what Christian said. The reality is when a lot of what we're talking about is focusing on the experience, right? Uh, if any of us at any of these tables thinks about the pain in the process of what we do, uh, we barely make room for the quality and the experience and the opportunity in there. So for us, it is about leveraging larger scale and, and the sort of offhanded comment that I made, the reality that a, a microbrewer that's doing it in their uh, the back of their pickup truck doesn't really make sense and works. And there's a scale that needs to happen, but it can still have the quality, the essence, the, the, the opportunity. And, and for us, and what I get excited about is the ability to scale um, uh, the value and the quality and the opportunity of design to a much larger audience and maybe what it hits today. Thanks. Hi, Colette. I, I, uh, first of all, everybody's presentation was great. But Colette, I, I, I do understand the problem within our industry as it relates to diversity. But um, did you take into consideration that even white males really are not flocking to our business? I mean, this is not, it's not right now a terribly, it has not historically been. I've been doing it for 38 years. I've gotten two calls from undergrads at Northwestern asking about commercial real estate in all 38 years. Now, it's maybe because they don't like me, but I, I think that there is a problem because you have to t also take into consideration that there is, unless you have an educational need to be in like the business, like architecture and, and stuff like that, um, this has never been a terribly desirable business to go into. Wow, there are a whole bunch of people in this room doing stuff they don't like. I don't know. Um, you know, I think that 
the challenge for the real estate industry, and I, I have to say mostly for the commercial side, because residential is kind of, you know, for sale residential is kind of clean, right? You got a house, you sell a house. It was one of those things. On the commercial side, I think one of the biggest challenges we have as an industry is back to the demystifying it, okay? Trying to help young people realize the various ways that their talents and interests can be utilized in this space, that the diversity of the disciplines that are engaged will provide a broad range of opportunity if you understand them. And it could be you know, young white men versus young women of color versus young white women. They look to the outside and unless their families are in the space, they, un they honestly have a tough time trying to figure out, like, what the heck do you guys do? I mean, yeah, I see this as an office building, but you don't have to be a developer. You don't have to be a property manager. You can be in design. You can be in marketing. You can be in so many different things. So I think the industry needs to own that it's unique ownership engagement it's capital intensity, and a little bit of the fog that we like to put up there so we look really cool is actually a barrier to attracting young talent to the industry of all walks. And then I get back to that, well, when we have all walks, then let's look at trying to get all walks engaged. My question is to the storyteller. And so I, I spend a lot of time uh, on, on the data side of things in the real estate business. And, uh, and storytelling seems like something that ought to be approachable. We all have read them since we were children. But the, uh, the, are, are there tips on, on putting together a story or, or, or creating it and putting it out to the world for people like me who? That's a really great a great question. You know, how do you take data and turn it into a story? And it, um, I'm not sure I have a like a pat answer for you on that. I think that um, what we've found in our small team is the more that we get to talk to people and have a conversation, the more we find out what they do. And um, you know, my team is mainly writers, and we just kind of and reporters, most of us have reporting backgrounds, we just kind of listen and, and then kind of build the story in our heads. I know that doesn't really tell you how to do it. Um, but I would say that my observation in talking to a lot of people, a lot of engineers in our organization, um, like I was at Lincoln Park Zoo a few weeks ago, and I was walking around with a guy that maintains everything behind the scenes, and you know, I said, what, do you, you know, what is great about your job? And he's like, nothing, I just come and I do my job. And I'm like, but you keep you know, all these animals alive. What do you mean you just do your job? So, but I walked around with him and talked to him for about an hour, and after about an hour, he could, it just kind of came out. So I think it's finding people who are passionate about what they do and listening to them and, um, and then just kind of turning it back into something that's relatable to other people, if that makes sense. I just have a quick question and a comment. And the question I'll start it off with, though, is I really am a big fan of um, The Walking Dead. 
And I'm glad that you outlined a path for a zombie to stop being a zombie because on the show, there's only one permanent way to become a non-zombie. So thank you for that. And I also wanted to share that um, I know that uh, some of the speakers have um, volunteerism attached to some of your subjects that you spoke about. And Cornet has a great volunteer event happening that includes diversity next Friday at the Annexter Center at 1 p.m. on Clybourne. So please, as a Cornet member and you want to reach out and bring somebody, sign up. But thank you, speakers. You did a great job. Okay. We have time for one more. Okay. We... Uh, Hope you like this format. We had fun putting it together. We were a little concerned about all the logistics, but it came together very well. We had an ulterior motive for doing this format, and that was to mine ideas for future programs. So we have 10 possibilities here. So I'm going to, we want to get a, a vote of the audience on which topics you liked. <clears throat> now, we have, I believe, 10 winners and no losers. So th this is just a voice vote. You can vote as many times as you want because we're happy to do all 10 programs. So I'm going to stand behind each speaker, ask you to applaud. Tony, you're going to be the, the judge. Okay. okay. <clears throat> so I'm going to start with Christian. Wow. Thank you. Okay, Tony, that's impossible. <laughs> Sounds to me like a tie, or we're going to have to have a clap off. <laughs> okay. Um, I think everybody here has championed their ideas and have done a wonderful <clears throat> job, and it just sounded <clears throat> awesome across the board. I am not going to pick it yet. Unless you want to have a clap off. Well, great. Thank you, everyone. Okay, please do, please do your surveys and thanks for coming.